Hey geeks, welcome to the Initiate Splinter Sequence podcast. We're your hosts, Chin Lin and Isaac, and we're here to talk about the hit sci-fi time travel show, 12 Monkeys, created by showrunner Terry Metalis and Travis Fickett. And I do give you a fair warning, there'll be spoilers ahead. Okay, so let's get started with the recap. We start episode 4 with Jones narrating. She is dying, and we get a flashback of younger Jones with her colleague Emma. They're listening to her husband Elliot speak about time travel. He's doing a demo with a seed. He puts a seed in the dirt and um, turns on the time travel machine. And we watch this seed grow into a plant, and then it gets all crazy and wonky, and this plant just grows really fast into a bunch of branches, and the light turns from blue to red. And uh, Elliot seems really surprised by this, and I, I don't want to be nitpicky, but this is, it's, an, it's not a public demonstration, but it's at least a demonstration for everyone in the office, and I feel like as a scientist, you should have definitely tested this beforehand. You should not be surprised by the outcome of your experiment that you're demoing. You might be surprised by the outcome of an experiment that you've never done before, but the time to do an experiment that you've never done before is not when you're trying to demonstrate it to people that have never seen it. This seems like sloppy science to me, and I, I don't know. I feel like any person that's actually, that does research and experimentation would be like, no, why, why are you doing it this way? This isn't right. <laughs> well, anyways, the team is trying to figure out the serpent message. And Jones is like, this message represents hope. And she puts Jennifer in charge as a guide. They all need to go back to 1852 to Blackleaf, which apparently is in Montana. We're not really sure how Jones is certain that it's Montana, but I digress. Cole tells Cassie about his mom, how he's afraid if he tells the team about her that she was the one who told him about the serpent message, that he would have to go back in time to kill her. For now, it's just a secret between them two. Cole, Cassie, Jennifer, and Hannah go back to 1852, they go into this tavern in Blackleaf, and they see Elliot Jones playing the piano. And, um, well, the tavern is basically just full of people who aren't from their time. There is a guy there wearing an eye watch. And this was actually a kind of a big surprise to me. I, I guess I had just always assumed that Elliot was dead. I thought he was dead, too. And so to see him back in 1852, I was like, oh... Well, I guess he's just been hanging out for a while. I honestly had assumed he died. I feel like somebody said he was dead, but it could have been somebody just lying or being angry about the way the relationship ended. I don't I don't know. But I was surprised to see him. Hannah was definitely surprised. Cassie was like, what is your father doing here? They see Elliot go talk to the pallid man. Now, we saw Olivia kill him at the end of season three, so obviously we know this is this is in Pallid Man's life before he gets to Titan, where he gets killed. And um, apparently Pallid Man needed, he needed Elliot to fix up time travel equipment for Titan, and Hannah eventually confronts Elliot and sends him back to um, 2043 to Jones with a, a tether shot 
and we learn that Elliot was actually the architect behind Titan. Cole, Cassie, and Jennifer find the place where Titan is being built, and back in 2043, Jones and Elliot are like, they haven't seen each other in years, so it's like this weird thing with an, an estranged married couple, like, getting back together in the same room. Like, he's all confused. What the hell's going on? What did you do with my time machine? I do recall that he he had um, that prototype made first. Um, so, yeah, he's very confused, understandably, because he was just hanging out, getting drunk in a bar, and then it suddenly um, sent back to the future. Uh, where he is confronted by a much older version of his, um, what I have to imagine is still wife. Like, I don't think they ever got divorced. I mean, from the story that we get, like, it, there, there was wasn't no, time for it, right? There it, was no mention of a divorce. No, because uh, Joan said, uh, I'm pregnant and I won't be tomorrow. And then apparently Elliot just, like, packed up his crap and left the sa- the next day. So. I don't think there were any um, divorce proceedings filed or anything. Back in 1852, we find out Jennifer is no longer primary. Well, she had already kind of hinted at this earlier on in the show that they did a good job of foreshadowing it where uh, Jennifer said, yeah, I, I used to see things. And then Cassie uh, makes the comment used to. And then Jennifer tries to play it off as a... Uh, Oh, no, I, you know, used to, do, whatever, it's the same. God, you guys don't understand that time's all around you and stuff. It was, a, it was a good cover, it was actually good work by the actress to sell that she was trying to sell something. So that was good. <laughs> there is a Native American tribe leader who appears, um, and he says he's seeking the primary. He's looking for Jennifer. They go into his tent, they start talking. He's making the red tea, but then he tells, Jennifer gets excited, and she's like, oh, I need the red tea so I can get visions and stuff. And he tells her, no, no, don't drink the red tea. Yeah, he was he was preparing the red tea for himself because that's how uh, he knows things, is by drinking the red tea. But uh, he tells Jennifer, no, that way lies death for you. Don't go there. Someone is watching for you. And Cassie correctly guesses that it's Olivia. And they, the Splinter team knows that they're trying to find this uh, weapon and they need a clue. And um, this guy tells them, okay, well, that's easy. Not easy. <laughs> But he's like, okay, what you need to do is climb the steps and ring the bell. And everyone just kind of repeats it back to him. And Jennifer is still like, okay, well, that's not enough for me to go on. And so just like dives in and like steals the red tea and takes a drink. And that does not end well. She sees the medieval primaries. They're like, what are you doing here? You're going to lead the witness straight to us. And then, of course, Olivia finds Jennifer, when is this moment, where, and Olivia basically just takes over Jennifer's body. We see her eyes turn black in 1852, and she's talking to the team, and she finds out, okay, this is May 1852, Blackleaf. And then he, she 
exits Jennifer's body, and everyone's like, we told you, this is what's going to happen. She Look got what you did. <laughs> and then um, back in uh, 2043, uh, Jones and Elliot are still talking, and Elliot realized that the point of the whole upgrades that he's doing for uh, building Titan is so that the 12 monkeys can destroy time. With, you know, super giant paradox, not tiny baby paradox. Because paradoxes are all fine and good if they're just a couple of watches. But if you do a building or something, that's that's too much for the universe to handle. <laughs> he goes back to 1852 and tells the team that they're going to use dynamite to blow up a bunch of cords that they had in some of the wagons. Yeah, a bunch of the power cords. Uh, yeah. I mean, which is a fine idea. I think it's great. I think their implementation was slipshod at best. Um, Cole and Cassie set up the dynamite to go off. And then Deacon shows up, sent by Olivia. And he actually steps on the cord when they're when they set it off. Deacon steps on it, which, so the dynamite actually doesn't go off. Which is why I have less of a problem with it, because at, at first, before Deacon stepped on that cord, I was like, does no one see these two people laying, like, shit tons of, like, fuses around so that all these bombs go off at the same time? Like, this, they can't be that inconspicuous. People should have noticed this. Uh, especially now that they've left it and now there's just like a sparking fuse on the ground. Like someone should walk by and go, hey, what's that doing? I should probably put that out because that's probably not supposed to be here. But since he can step on it, I'll, I'll let you guys slide. It's it's fine. Uh, now, what I was concerned about was once, 20, uh, once Olivia finds out uh, that they are back in 1852, why does she not send people back before the Splinter team gets there. Oh, yeah, she sends them right when they're about to right blow up the dynamite. Yeah, right when they're about to do a thing. Why wouldn't you try and preempt them? Like, that's... I Okay, at that point, I will agree with you. I think that is a little bit of sloppy writing. So, well, later on, we find out a thing that we'll talk about later that I think might explain what could have happened. But at the time, yes, I was like, okay, come on, they're... You really should have like tried to preempt these guys. There's no reason why you wouldn't have. So Hannah is getting ready to send Elliot back. But then Deacon shows up and fucking shoots the guy like right in the chest. And Elliot is dying on the ground. And Hannah, poor Hannah is crying. And he luckily he stole the uh, USB from Pallid Man's computer with all the records of like building titan and he gave it to her before he died and i feel like that may be a little bit of deus ex machina because i'm not sure how many laptops exist back in 1852 but it can't be that many and i really don't feel like you're going to need to store plans to your masterwork on a flash drive instead of just a regular hard drive of the laptop where you would have to take the entire laptop how would that work? Because you need a power cord to charge your laptop. Well, so that's actually not that difficult. But yeah, I see where you're going. There's no outlets, right? Yeah. Um, but laptops don't take that much electricity. They take uh, 100 watts. Actually, most of them these days take 45 watts. And you can just like rig up like a, uh, like a 
exercise bike with some magnets on it on the wheels to create a magnetic field over a loop of wire and you can get a charge but considering they have future technology and giant um power cores i'm sure like rigging something up to charge a 45 watt laptop is not going to be difficult gotcha and while all this is happening titan uh disappears in the background did splinter somewhere do we know where it went we don't know where it went so as um as Elliot is taking the flash drive, uh, you hear someone over uh, a PA system, which I'm really, I mean, obviously they're taking future technology, so I guess that's where they're getting their PA system from. Um, the people from 1852 don't seem to be phased by all this weird future stuff, but whatever. Someone over the PA system says um, to clear the area and initiate splinter sequence, so uh, it took them a while to spin everything up, but... Uh, they jumped somewhere, and as far as we know, we don't know where that went to. They, We do know that the plan right now was supposed to be to bring back all the pieces uh, from different time periods and assemble it, I think, here in 1852, but now they're going to have to change that plan. Um, the team goes back to 2043 to figure out what to do next. Jennifer isn't primary anymore. Jones says that she's dying and everyone is shocked. And I'm not sure why they're shocked because she did say when they had to fix the core that there was going to be radiation, splinter radiation exposure. I don't know whether, I don't know that any of them know that she was the one to go and release the pressure manually or re- Turn the valve on. Turn, oh yeah, turn the valve. I mean, uh, I I still hate that whole premise. It it burns me so bad. What's happened has happened. Yeah. Let bygones be bygones. I'll, I'll try and let it go, but if you're boiling a river, you can't get with the amount of heat being put off by the device. You certainly can't get close enough to it to just turn the handle without you know melting yourself. All right, I'll I'll let it go. <laughs> Um, Jennifer confronts Cole about the serpent message because she's like, I know you. I know you're hiding something. I actually, I thought this scene was pretty good uh, because partly because I've been listening to the Wheel of Time again and that whole series is predicated upon people just not sharing all the information with each other and that being a huge reason for misunderstanding and conflict. I assumed that all these secrets were just going to keep per- like being perpetuated and causing more problems. And this scene just like alleviated a lot of that tension because Jennifer's prodding of Cole uh, kind of made uh, Jones feel guilty. And then she was like, okay, fine, I will tell my secret. And that actually allowed everyone else to just go ahead and open up. And so... That allowed Cole to be like, yeah, it was my mom that wrote this poem, and that's how I know it. I liked this scene. I thought it was really good that we were finally getting away from this idea of, like, the only reason for conflict is asymmetric information. Like, no, we can have conflict without that. And I'm glad that we've at least gotten rid of the asymmetric information problems on the team. Now, between the witness and the team, that's still not resolved, but that's okay. It's a time travel show. It's kind of what it's about. <laughs> exactly. 
We end the episode with a flashback. Elliot and Emma. Emma was the colleague that I mentioned earlier at the beginning of the episode with that flashback. They are working on the machine, and it turns out the machine is acting up again with the blue light turning to red light. He basically told Emma how to rip a hole in the universe. Which was essentially trying to send something forward in time and backward in time at the same time. So simultaneously? He's like, don't do that. That's bad. I'm like, well, yeah, that's bad. She should know that's bad. That should not be news. And number two, why did you not notice this when you first said, yeah, all the readings are good? I'm like, did you not look at the parameters? Did you not see she tried to send stuff forward and back at the same time? What? What kind of slipshod science department are you guys running here? Doing stuff all willy-nilly with time that could just destroy you. I feel like these guys need to, like, really develop better safety protocols. Because they are going to, like, ruin reality by accident. Well, I mean, they're not as bad as the Westworld writers, you know? Like, all these hosts running around the headquarters willy-nilly with no security whatsoever. Well, okay, but that's not the writers. I mean, that was just, like, the security team at uh, at Westworld just, you know, didn't have access to the things they needed to have access to to, you know, stop all the hosts from being able to kill people. But is, we digress. Point is, these guys, very unsafe scientists, surprised they're not dead already. So it turns out Emma is working with the Army of the Twelve Monkeys. She drinks the red tea to communicate with the witness, Olivia. I know how to complete Titan and its purpose. And it turns out she's Olivia's daughter! And that's why Olivia had her younger self get pregnant in 1971. And we we know who the baby is and the purpose of this baby. I'm like, oh, that's an amazing reveal! Yeah, you. I mean, you apparently just love this show for reveals. They they do a really good job and, with reveals. And Cole, I I that's like the two reasons you watch this show. Reveals and Cole, and I, if there are reveals about Cole, double whammy. I love Aaron Stanford. Like no joke, I've loved this guy since when did X two come out? The second X-Men movie? I don't know. I want to say like 2004, but... No, I think it was like... 2002. 2001, 2002. The first time I ever saw Aaron Stanford act was when he played the mutant Pyro in X2. And ever since, like, I've just, I've just loved the guy. And when I found out he was leading 12 Monkeys, I knew I had to watch it. So. And I'm not jealous at all. It's fine. Totally fine. <laughs> Okay, then uh, obviously because of the way the schedule is, uh, we immediately get episode five right after episode four, and that is awesome. Uh, Here we see uh, Mr. Shaw, uh, also known as the missionary, I believe, from season three, um, played by Christopher Lloyd, and he's narrating a story, and you can tell he's like reminiscing in these awesome memories he has of himself as a kid and this girl and apparently they get married and have a kid but she dies and he hates that and he is uh he's reminiscing all this in the red forest dreamland it seems and it seems like um olivia is allowing him uh to revel in these memories 
Now the thing I have a concern with here is that Olivia is not hiding her face from him, which seems completely out of character because pretty much her entire plan is predicated on the fact that no one knows that she's not a man um, as the witness uh, for the like the first, I don't know, half of her plan. So it seems to me like she's she's being really blasé about being like, ah, oh, no, nah, Mr. Shaw can see me. He was only raising the other guy that was supposed to be the witness. Like, ah, uh, I don't know. So Mr. Shaw is, you know, reminiscing, and then Olivia asks him to find the weapon, and then if he's able to do that, he she will let him just live in these memories forever, and everything will be cool. And so he's sold, because obviously he doesn't like the memory of his wife dying, and he would like it to not be that way. He'd like to just live in the good times all the time. And who wouldn't? This doesn't seem like such a bad thing. Not that I'm rooting for the Red Forest or anything. I mean, it just seems like it could be a happy place if you wanted it to be, if you had control of everything, which I don't know. I don't know if there's any guarantee that you do. I feel like Olivia is, man, I'm going to keep going back to the Wheel of Time. I'm sorry, guys. Uh, I feel like she's like similar to the Dark One in that she'll promise you whatever, uh, like, oh, yeah, you'll have power to do all these things when in reality you won't because... That's just how it goes. She gets to keep it all. I don't know. I'm not sure what her whole plan is yet. We'll see. Then we get to 2043 and a scene in 2043 that Chin Lin obviously just loves because it's uh, Cole and Cassie like doing the nasty. <laughs> and who doesn't love naked people, obviously. Cole isn't sure how he fits into the whole serpent demon thing, and Cassie really wants to talk about, well, forget about that. Like, if we succeed, what happens afterward? Like, our relationship would seem to not exist, right? And he's like, shh, don't think about that. Um, he doesn't say that, but that's sort of his reaction. Luckily, Jennifer decides she wants to crash the party. <laughs> She barges in telling them that she's found a uh, reference to the message of climb the steps, ring the bell, and it happens to be at a murder scene in 1966. So awesome. We go back to 1966. And I actually think this episode is pretty well done. It's got a lot of loops where people have to avoid seeing themselves. It's very reminiscent, I think, of Back to the Future uh, or Back to the Future 2. Those are both awesome movies. Very reminiscent of, you know, trying to avoid yourself. And I, I liked it. I thought it was good. Maybe that's why they had Christopher Lloyd come back as a guest star for this one. I mean, it helps. Yeah. It definitely helps. I did not find a lot to complain about in this episode, which was refreshing and nice. I liked it. Essentially what happens is this whole rigmarole ends up being that uh, Jennifer is actually the one that wrote the message on the wall. Uh, they find out that uh, FBI agent Gale is not dead um, because he was warned about his imminent death and decided to wear a bulletproof vest in uh, Berlin when he gets shot like 13 times. Which, I don't know if you guys know this, not how bulletproof vests work. You, you can't take that many bullets. They kind of deteriorate after one. Well, maybe it was a brand new uh, bullet vest. Maybe. Maybe. 
Um, I don't know what the technology with bulletproof vests are like back then, but it, it, it for the convenience of the show, it worked out. I, I guess. I feel like he would have been better served with a giant one-inch steel plate on his chest, but, you know, fine. Either way, he's alive and they get to use him. So, first loop, um, Cole and... Cassie are back in 1966, and they are going to see the Russians, and they're just going to, like, find out what's going on. Oh, dead Russians in that murder scene, because um, they find a thing. Don't worry about it. It's not important. The point is, uh, they're just supposed to, like, watch and see who's the seller so that they could, like, track down the bell, or maybe not the bell, but some something, some key to the weapon, which they think might be the bell. Anyway. The point is, Cole gets antsy, and they start walking towards the room, and then they hear a kerfuffle in the room, and so they bust in, and Cassie is already thinking, like, oh, God, we're going to shoot them, and this is, like, it's going to be us that did this to us all over again. Well, they bust in, the guys are already dead, the message is already on the wall, and there's nobody in the room, so, like, well, crap. But then the phone rings, and some German-ish sounding, Russian-ish sounding guy is like, you guys don't sound Russian. And Cole's like, yeah, don't worry about that. Why don't you just come meet us at the Emerson Hotel and uh, we'll do this thing. And somehow that works. I don't know. Um, I think that if I was trying to pull off some weird thing, I'd probably go, no, I'm. Mm, you do not sound like the person I was setting this up with, but okay. Anyway, uh, they get back to the Emerson and Cole and Cassie have to split up for reasons and... Cole ends up meeting the guy alone and then ends up, you think he might have gotten shot because Shaw shows up and shoots the German slash Russian guy, uh, German slash Russian sounding guy. I actually don't know his origins at this point uh, in the show. And you think Cole might be shot. Um, Cassie had been uh, captured by Shaw earlier and she escapes her attackers or her captors and then rushes up to Cole and finds him. He's on the ground, and she thinks he's shot, but he's not. Turns out he's been poisoned. She's like, oh, yeah, and then everything goes really cool at this point. She's like, okay, because this is how I would use a time machine, right? She's like, all right, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back to the future right now, which she does, and she's like, okay, I want to go back, but, you know, before then so I can warn Cole and stop this thing from happening. I'm like, yes, there's never been a consequence from that, but... Consequences be damned, this is the only way you're going to save Cole. And Cole had assumed he was invincible at this point because he knows he lives past this point. So he's like, ah, it's fine, I can be by myself. Um, so then uh, Cassie does splinter back, but like minutes before, and there's this good thing about a woman's coat being stolen that you hear earlier, and then you... I. I knew that it was going to play in um, later, but I wasn't sure how. And then it turns out that Cassie had stolen the code. It's great. So moving on, uh, Cassie number two is now running around and had caused a near paradox by getting within like 15 feet of herself in the lobby. Uh, more on that later, because I feel like she gets closer later with no ill effects, but that's fine. It's not fine. It's something that annoys me. Um... <laughs> she doesn't have any time to uh to really do anything she tries she gets up to cole but cole is like 
okay, well, now that you've warned me that I'm going to get poisoned, cool, I'll play it different. But they still stick with the plan. He decides but, yeah, to stick with the plan. He, he's like, I don't care about anything else but getting this weapon. Like, I don't, like, we have to get it, so we're getting it, and... I'm not stopping right now just because you think I'm going to get poisoned. You told me so. I'm not going to get poisoned. Whatever. As Cassie's like try, as Cassie number two is trying to like exit the room while this quote unquote seller is in there with Cole, she gets again stopped by uh, Shaw, which I thought was a great piece of irony. Uh, they have a little chat. And then Shaw still busts in the room and shoots the cellar, and we find out that what actually happens next is not Cole getting shot, but both Cassie and Cole getting poisoned. Then Cole giving up the information about where the whereabouts of the weapon are, which happened to be just downstairs in the lobby, and I don't know why he didn't tell them just anything else, because they believe him. He could have been like, okay, so it's in, it's on the roof of the Empire State Building in a box marked urgent or something. Like, he could have made up anything, but he didn't. He told him the truth. But that ended up working out only because of uh, a different thing later. He tells him, uh, chooses to let Cassie live, and he's still poisoned. Somehow, somebody gets an antidote, and he does eventually get that injected into him. I forget. Agent Gale. Oh, right. Agent Gale. Okay. He got the anecdotes from his from, from his FBI From friends. somebody at the FBI. Right. Okay, so... He gives it to Jennifer. In, right. In parallel with this thing going on with uh, Cole and two Cassies, Jennifer has decided that shit has hit the fan and needs to be fixed, and... Uh, they need to involve Agent Cole, and it turns out he is alive. Agent Gale. Gale. Why did I say Cole? I'm drunk. They're they're very similar names. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> involve Agent uh, Gale, and so she goes back, gets Gale involved, and turns out that they're the ones in the next room to the Russians, and it does turn out that Gale killed the Russians, and... That Jennifer wrote the message on the wall. So Cassie was right in the sense in that they did it to themselves again. Like, it was them chasing their own tails. And I, I thought it was kind of funny. I was like, ha, you thought you had avoided it and you didn't. This was still just you being you and making you chase after you. It was great. But once Cassie 2 was... Uh, so Cassie 2 met up with Jennifer at some point in the lobby, I think. And it doesn't matter where. Point is, Jennifer was able to, able to give her the antidote for Cole, but Cassie too had to let Cole look like he was dying so that Cassie one would still go back to the future, and uh, so she hid from herself like ten feet on the other side of the wall, which I feel like man should have set off Cassie one like ah I feel all paradoxy again. That's strange. The lobby and now here, but that didn't happen. And then, we, we know from history that this show likes to play fast and loose with those paradoxes. Yes. Okay, fine. We're moving on. Cole is, uh, you know, healed and stuff, and everything's great. Deacon, meanwhile, uh, goes downstairs and finds the guy that has the box, that has the weapon in it, and calmly talks him out of it, and goes back and takes it to Olivia. Uh, so, you know, win for Deacon. 
However, on the way out, Deacon is like, uh, Jennifer confronts Deacon, and Deacon's like, this is exactly where I want to be, and winks at her. And I was like, oh, he's super Trojan horse style. He's like, uh, spoiler alert for those of you not familiar with the Wheel of Time, he's like Varen, uh, or Varen Sedai, like the long con deep cover agent. Like, oh, yeah, no, I pretended to be dark the whole time. Just so that we had someone on the inside. And that seems to be what Deacon's doing now. I do want to point out, in our last podcast episode concerning Deacon, you were saying how the writers, you thought the writers were pulling a Vegeta referencing Dragon Ball Z. All right, fair enough. And I was wrong. They're totally not doing that. They're doing like a deep covered double agent story. And I like it. I like it too. It's a good job. I'm... I'm happy that we're not just flip-flopping back and forth like, oh, he's good, oh, he's bad, oh, he's good, oh, he's bad. No, no, no. He's he's doing this because he, I think, and so this actually redeems him for uh, several things. Um, uh, Assuming he's telling the truth, which we later find out that he is, but redeems him for several things. Like, no, he's not super butthurt about them leaving the past. He is a rational person. He he does realize that they, like, there was nothing they could do at that point. They had to leave him behind. Um, uh, you assume at that point, then, that he had a reason for killing Elliot and exactly why he didn't kill Hannah. Be, because when he killed Elliot, I'm like, uh, you've got more than one bullet in that gun, son. Why didn't you just pull the trigger again and off Hannah while you were at it? But it's because he's not, he's, he's playing the, the, the double team there. So still appearing to be on the witness's side while not actually being on the witness's side was necessary. And killing Elliot turned out to be reasonably necessary, though that could turn out to backfire on him. We'll see. But yes, that was that was a good reveal. I was very happy with that turn of events. And then everything is all cool, right? Gail says that they they should go back to the uh, get the weapon from the people who originally had it, and it turns out that it was uh, some group from the Nazis that was like hunting down artifacts to help them win the war because they felt like militarily they weren't doing it. So then we're like, oh sweet, next episode's gonna be Nazi time in World War Two. Then uh, the whole team says goodbye to Gale and everything, and Cole thinks he saw the afterlife, or at least something similar to it, and he felt like Cassie was there, and Cassie, being a doctor, kind of dismisses it as, no, that's just what people who have near-death experiences always like say, like it's just a lack of oxygen to the brain, so the brain just starts making the loopy stories. She doesn't say any of that, but that's what doctors say. She she called it a hallucination. Right. Okay. But then the awesome thing at the end is we see the conversation that Cassie too has with Shaw. And Shaw essentially convinces Cassie that the Red Forest is going to be awesome. And uh, you don't have to watch Cole die. You can always just live in the time where it's you and Cole and it's awesome time. And he's like, doesn't that sound cool? And she's like, yes, yes, it does. Whoever does the special effects, they do this cool thing where as he's talking, the scene is gradually turning redder and redder to the point where she says, yes, that does sound awesome. And I really liked it. I really, 
thought that was a good move, like visually, to see that. Yeah, you you really get the the idea that like she's going over to the Red Forest side. And I know you're probably thinking of me being a hypocrite about allowing Cassie to go uh, back and forth on whether she wants to destroy this reality or not. But I mean, she she's not she's not going back and forth between being evil. It's just you know whether or not she feels like she can make a sacrifice. And I get that. Like I get. Well, I like my life now, so maybe it's not so bad that seven billion people died of a horrible plague. That sounds rather selfish to me, but I could see where she's coming from. All right, on to episode six. We start off this the episode with a scene marked France, 1940, and we see a Nazi commander who rounds up all of his maids and butlers because he finds a piece of propaganda of French resistance. And he's saying, whoever wrote this needs to come forward right now. And this maid is about to do it, but her friend comes forward instead. And this commander shoots her right in the head. Yeah, obviously making a sacrifice. This trope is kind of, I think, overdone that Nazis list just like shot people in the head willy nilly all the time, but I mean, Nazis are bad, so I'm not gonna uh, begrudge the writers for making me want to hate Nazis more. That's fine. I'm okay with that. Back in 2043, they know that they need to go back to World War Two, and they dig up more information about the the Nazi group who has the weapon, the bell. And they realize, oh yeah, we need to infiltrate this Nazi commander's gala to get the bell. And uh, they call the bell um, in German, it's a uh, Die Glocke. Am I saying Die that Glocke. right? Die Glocke. Oh, that's an, uh, the, the the languages in this particular episode uh, were good. Well done. Like they were really speaking German when they were speaking German. I don't speak French, but uh, Chinlin, you do. <laughs> were they they did well with their French? I took a few years of French growing up, so I think I think I can say with some credibility that they spoke very, very good French. My French needs some work, though. So <laughs> I mean, my German needs a lot of work, but uh, yeah, I I could tell this was like this was real German. They weren't just making German sounding sounds and subtitling it. It was it was really German. It was good. Uh, Jones's plan is for them to host the gala for the Nazi commander. So they Photoshop a bunch of fake papers to show that Jones owns the, uh, her family owns the mansion that they are holding the gala. So she shows up with these papers claiming that this mansion is privately owned by her family and she is welcome to be there with her American niece who Cassie plays this role. So let's go over the roles real quick. Jennifer, because she's fluent in French, having been stuck in France, she was stuck in the 1920s in season three, so she learned a lot of French. Cole <laughs> doesn't know French or German, so he's stuck being the helper guy who's uh, outside, like, unloading the trucks. Cassie is the American niece, and Jones is the very high, well-known, Nazi-sympathizing German socialite or something? Yeah, essentially someone that's very rich and owns a lot of... Pro her story is that she's got a lot of uh, properties that are a revenue stream for her, and that uh, she was boyhood friends with uh, Himmler, so she's well-connected within the Nazi party. 
So the bell arrives in the case, and um, I want to mention just uh, since we were just talking about the uh, episode, I, I feel like the directing in this episode was actually pretty good, uh, especially the the edits for the cuts, like going from scene to scene. Uh, there was a lot of where one line, the end of a line or the end sound of one scene coincided with the next line or sound in the next scene. It was like, I thought it was really good. And what what, made, what reminded me of it was us talking about the languages and then uh, how Cole didn't speak either language. And they were like, uh, he was like, what should I do? And they just, they said, just say we. And he's like, we? And they said, we. And then the, they cut to someone speaking French to him and he just goes, we. <laughs> And oh right, right. Uh, the guys, the guy, uh, this, the French guy who's talking to him. Well, he's un- Cole's unloading the truck, and the French guy is like, "What are you stupid?" It, and Cole is like, "We." Yeah, I think he actually says, "Are you deaf or stupid?" And uh, and Cole just says, "We." But I don't think Cole was unloading the truck. I think he was standing around smoking a cigarette, and the guy wanted to wanted his help. He wasn't actually there to help. He was just supposed to appear like he was going to help. Yeah, he was just standing there smoking a cigarette. The guy's like, you want to come here? And he's like, we. <laughs> so good. <laughs> and then he doesn't move. <laughs> that was so good. Oh. Um, but that's not the only time. This, it actually happens a lot throughout the episode. Um, uh, gunshots from one uh, scene turn into uh, champagne pops in the next scenes. Um, so the bell arrives and, uh, Cole is hiding behind a truck. Um, Deacon finds him, but the, some of the Nazi soldiers find them and they think they are French resistance. So they tell the commander and he's like, okay, we'll catch, get them and kill them. Well, they realize that they're Americans by the time they ask the commander. Oh, that's right. That's right. I mean, yes. At first they're like, oh, are you guys French resistance? What are you guys doing here? But after quote-unquote interrogation, which really just seemed to be like punching the guys in the face a bunch um, and not really asking any questions. They figured out that they were American because they only spoke English. Yeah, they asked the commander and the commander's like, uh, the Fuhrer's coming, so uh, execute them because I can't afford any problems with security here. We see the maid from the earlier scene who is part of the French resistance, and it turns out she and a fellow soldier who is also a French resistance. They're together they're planning to bomb the mansion with all the Nazis, including Hitler, who's supposed to arrive. We find out that the Nazi commander wants to unveil the bell to Hitler at the gala. After the entertainment, they hired a woman to sing. The maid is planning to bomb the place like right after the entertainment. They'll know where everyone is, and they'll bring down the house on top of all these um, high-ranking Nazi officials, including Hitler. Back to the interrogation, when the Nazi soldiers are um, punching the shit out of Deacon and Cole. Uh, They take Cole, but they leave Deacon because there's this one sick guy who takes out his knife. Well, right. Well, so there's a reason for that. So the orders were, you know, just kill the two, right? Uh, right before that order comes in, Deacon spits in that guy's face. Oh, that's right. That's right. He spat in his face. And this guy is like, man, I am going to get you so bad. Yeah. I was like, so he's like, all right, well, I have to kill him. But it didn't say I had to kill him immediately. So instead of just 
sending him to the firing line like they're going like they're doing with Cole. He's like, I'm gonna torture him first and, you know, kill this other guy. Uh, but that's when Deacon then, you know, reveals that he's been playing a double agent to Cole. I don't think Cole believes him at first. He's weighing in his mind, all right, well, should I just leave him to his fate because he's just lying to me so that I will save his life? But he didn't know I'd be able to save his life, and I think that's probably what changed. He's like, okay, if I logic this out, he didn't know that I'd be able to save his life. He was just telling me I didn't. he didn't switch. He assumed he was going to die. He assumed I was going to die. Oh, there was one more thing with this scene that you... Had, oh, you wanted to nitpick about yes. the gunshots? Yes. So when Cole like defeats his captors, he shoots them with this automatic weapon, which does not have a silencer on it. And also silencers don't work the way that we think they do in movies and TV shows. But that's neither here nor there. It's a very loud gun. And no one on the property seems to be running towards these gunshots. There's supposed to be a lot of security around this place because, you know, all these artifacts and, oh, I don't know, the leader of the country is coming by. Perhaps they would want to secure the place when there's errant gunshots. But no, they were just like, ah, somebody's firing down the hall, whatever. Not even going to look into it. It's fine. We'll just continue the party. Hitler arrives to the house. Deacon and Cole, um... They take the dead Nazi soldiers' um, uniforms, so they look the part. They go regroup with the rest of the team. Jones is super pissed at Deacon for killing Elliot, so she's, she's like, got the gun. And they're like, no, no, he's, he's on our side. Right. Um, and Deacon had explained to Cole and has to explain to Jones again, like, but I killed Elliot on purpose because if I didn't, he would have completed Titan and that would have been game over. I'm playing a long con. You guys suck at it. Oh, oh, I need to go back a few minutes. Um, I forgot one thing. Jones isn't feeling well because of the splinter radiation. So there's this point where she's on a sofa chair. She's just looking off into space, and Cassie and Jennifer are with her. My question is, is Jones getting some primary abilities? Because her mind goes back to the facility. Jennifer appears next to her, and she's she's trying to relate to her, like trying to walk her through this process. Right, and so um, maybe that's what we're supposed to get out of it. That's That's definitely a possibility. Could be. I don't think so. I just feel uh, like it was a very random scene to have. Yeah, right. Like, it, it does feel strange, and they'll probably, like, make fools of us next week uh, with the next episodes. But, yeah, I don't know. I don't I don't think she's becoming primary or anything like that. I do think that some it did it had to have something to do with time, though, right? Because it really did seem like Jennifer got in there and helped her. Now... Do you think it was the Jennifer that was sitting there with her or just primary Jennifer? Well, current Jennifer is no longer primary. So it could be some Jennifer from a different time is what I'm thinking. I don't know that Jones is becoming primary, but she may be getting some other ability to like travel the time stream without having to splinter, right? Because she's been hit with all this quote unquote splinter radiation. So, uh, sorry guys, uh, going back to where I was in the recap, the whole team realizes that they need to, they need to get the bell. 
before the bomb goes off because the maid and her soldier lover, they decide to accelerate the timeline. Uh, so she kills the French maid. Cole, they, the team splits up. Cole and Cassie go get the bell. Deacon is supposed to find the bomb, and the bomb is hidden under a cart with food. So since the French singer is dead, everyone has gathered into the room waiting for entertainment. Jennifer, having been a singer in 1920s France, decides, okay, I'm going to pose as J.H. Bond, and I'm going to go perform for the Nazis. The commander, the Nazi commander, is suspecting something is wrong, so he takes Jones off to the side. Jennifer is singing a song in English, and... Right. Jennifer's, uh, Jennifer's job was to uh, delay the commander and Hitler from going down to see the bell. Like, that was her job. Her job was to keep them occupied somehow uh, while uh, Cassie and Cole Got go the down bell. there and get it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she's singing a song in English, not French, and she's doing it rock style. Which I think is weird because, like, we do see a guitar in the background and we see, like, one drum. No, you, I, okay, I'm okay with the drums and I'm okay with her passing out sheet music and having them play and having her sing. What I'm not okay with was I'm pretty sure I, I heard an electric guitar and I'm like, where are you getting this electric guitar in 1940? Yeah, yeah, right. there was one guy with a guitar, but it wasn't electric. No, and, like, the, the bass was just, you know, your old style, like, bass stand-up bass not the bass that you hear in like blink 182 it's not the same thing uh cassie and cole go get the bell in the room downstairs which i really have a bone to pick with that scene they're shooting like crazy cassie enters in in uh what i can only assume to be like a fan service costume because it serves a purpose it distracts the guards they they do initially look at her like, oh, what's she going to do? Why is she so scantily clad? But then she, you know, whips up the gun and starts firing. Meanwhile, Cole is now enters the back of the room. It, she's at the front. And so now they are essentially firing at each other with automatic weapons. I, I don't see how they don't just shoot the crap out of each other. Like, they are literally shooting at each other with just human bodies in the way. And... I feel like they both should have been shot several times. So unless they're Taviran and have somehow magically, you know, gotten bullet shields or something, I I don't know. I don't like that scene. I mean, I like it and I don't like it. I like it because the distraction works well. I don't like it in that they're firing at each other. I mean, don't you see this in like every other action movie with... Uh, no, what you normally see is uh, good guys always hit their marks, which they did here, and bad guys always miss their marks, which uh, also happened here. You rarely see good guys firing at each other and missing. Mm. Yeah, it's like they, they were playing a video game and just had a friendly fire turned off. I don't know. Um, um, Deacon finds the bomb just in time before the maid is about to set off the detonator. And there's actually two detonators. She has one. But um, the bomb doesn't go off. And then there's another detonator that was in the cart with the bomb. So Deacon grabs it. Yeah, so I think the idea here was that both detonators had to be pushed, not simultaneously necessarily, but just had to be pushed to send the signal to set off the bomb. The soldier guy got 
Um, he was killed. Yeah, he got intercepted by other soldiers when every when everything was going tits up, and he decided to just take a gun and try and kill Hitler, and then got shot instead. So he didn't have his detonator. So when the maid presses hers, nothing happens. Deacon has the other detonator. At the end of the shooting, Cassie and Cole get the bell. They open up the case, and the bell is this really nice, fancy monkey head. I was like, oh, I like that. (laughs) It did look cool. Yeah. Um, It was like a monkey wearing a helmet. Kind of cool. A soldier kills the French maid. While she's dying, she's asking Jennifer to finish the job. Deacon saves Jones from um, the Nazi commander because uh, all this shit is going down. And he's confronting her about it. He's like, you're involved, aren't you? And she's like, yes, I am, you Nazi piece of shit. <laughs> Deacon is on the other side of the room, and he shoots the Nazi commander before the Nazi commander is about to kill Jones. Oh, okay, so then a soldier takes the case. So there was a soldier in the room with uh, Cassie and Cole that did not die, and he gets up and grabs the empty case. And then they give you a, a nice flash of the cellar from the previous episode. And you're like, oh, cool. Does he know he has an empty case? Uh, or is he just like selling people empty cases? Like, uh, that's weird, but cool. It turns out he grabbed a decorative bell. Yeah, there was another bell that um, that Jones and uh, Cassie look at at first. Uh, when they first get to the ball, and they're like, "Oh, this is just some dumb-looking bell." Like it. It's I mean, not the real. It's not the real weapon. It's just decorative. Or it's not the key to the weapon because I've noticed they've been making a distinction that the bell is not necessarily the weapon; it's the key to the weapon, mm. which is why you need to climb the steps and ring the bell. So there's going to be some steps somewhere, I assume, that they need to climb, and by ringing the bell, it's going to set off the weapon. Yeah, so this is my this is going to be my prediction here. The steps I don't think necessarily matter. I think it's you end up going up to the top of the tower in Titan, and Titan is just a huge time machine, right? Okay, this bell we or we know uh, emits um, some form of I want to say tachyons, but they're going to call it splinter radiation in the show. <laughs> Getting all technical here. No, I've, different science fiction. Like other science fiction shows will call time particles tachyons. Anyway, so we know it emits that, right? So it's presumably if you ring it, it it's going to send out a different pattern of splinter radiation, right? And so if you happen to do it probably just at the right moment while Titan is trying to splinter or something, it'll break itself and... But the bell is going to emit sound waves, not radiation. Also radiation. Sound waves are radiation? Well, no. Sound waves are ripples in air, right? But when you hit something, right, and it makes a sound, it's because it's vibrating. Yeah. Right? So that vibration means that it's moving back and forth, right? Yes. Okay. So if it was emitting some constant radiation, now it's emitting some pulsing radiation, it's moving closer to you, then it's moving further away, closer, further away, closer, further away, right? Uh-huh. Okay. That could be a disturbance in splinter radiation, right? Okay, that thing is going to... Essentially trigger trigger something to happen in Titan, is going to be my guess. Okay. 
I can see that. Yeah, and climbing the steps is going to, like, it sounds so trivial here, but it's going to be climbing the center tower in Titan, and that's going to be, like, filled with people trying to kill them. So the team runs out and gets into a car, and Deacon has the detonator with him. And Jennifer is like, oh, yeah, let's press the button. And Jones... <laughs> warns her about causality, right? And it's like, well, you don't want to ruin everything and allow and allow none of this to happen just because we defeated Hitler here. Jennifer doesn't care because if you have a time machine and you go back to the time where Hitler is, you're supposed to kill Hitler and uh, she sets off the bomb, which apparently does kill Hitler uh, in the next scene where you see uh, a uh, headline where the article reads that there was a bombing and Hitler is dead and Himmler has taken over. Um, so they, while they did kill Hitler going back in time, they didn't necessarily stop the Nazis yeah, from didn't. continuing their, right. mo- their movement. Yeah, they didn't stop the Nazi movement, right? They just stopped who was in charge. Nothing else really seemed to have changed uh, or... These shots that they've been uh, taking to go back and forth between time have really moved them outside the time stream, and they just can't remember any of the other stuff that should have changed their memories. The team is examining the monkey bell, and they find the uh, carving of another location that they need to go to, that the primaries left for them, the um, medieval primaries left for them. They have to go really far back to 1491, Hertfordshire, England. Yeah, Hertfordshire. You better be proud of me. I said it right the first time. Before we started recording, I was like saying Hertfordshire, Hertfordshire, Hertfordshire. Like I was saying it like so badly because I was like, damn, I can never get these freaking English words down. So they've got this this time and place, right? Uh, this one's a little less specific. It's just an entire year, uh, 1491. But they, they run into the problem of they don't have a tether that goes back that far, or they can't have it. Anyway, uh, so my understanding would be that even if they did send someone back that far, they would not be able to get them back. And then Jones and Deacon... They cook up a plan. Kind of talk to each other and decide that, you know, they're both on borrowed time. They're going to die fairly soon anyway, so might as well do a thing. What I thought was, oh, they're gonna, they're just going to go both go way back in time and then live out the rest of their days in the 1500s. Not what actually happened. Maybe they'll still do that, but not how the episode ended. Deacon brings Jones to Olivia. Yeah, so Jones was talking to Deacon uh, about, you know, are are you just going to go back empty-handed? And he's like, yeah, if I do, it's not going to be good. And so uh, he shows up. Uh, Olivia assumes he's empty-handed, but then he's like, no, no, look, I brought Jones. My question is, Chinlin, what do you think they're going to do about that? Does Jones have any value to Olivia right now? Because I mean, Deacon seems to think she does, but I, I don't, I don't know what, like, what use Jones is to Olivia right now. Like, I mean, she knows where the bell is. Does Olivia know that they're gonna go back to fourteen ninety one? No, at some point she ends up back there, right, to kill all those guys. 
That was the first scene of episode one, right? Oh, the flashback. Yeah. Yeah. She eventually figures it out. How she figures it out, I don't know. Um, maybe she gets it out of Jones here, or maybe she ends up with the bell. What I was thinking is this, though. The bell can only be is only going to be able to be rung by Olivia. Oh, she's the demon. She's the demon, right? And the, only the demon can use the weapon. Yeah. If only the demon can use the weapon, that means the bell needs to end up in her hands somehow. Because the serpent can't use it. Well, my initial thought was Cole would be the one to ring the bell. Because mm. the message was for him. And even if the splinter team isn't the serpent, if time is the serpent, time doesn't have the ability to ring the bell. And again, in the in the poem, it's only the serpent had the ability to use the weapon. Oh, sorry, only the, the demon. demon had the ability to use the weapon. So then it would indicate that Olivia is the only one that could do it. I mean, Jones is pretty smart, so she might have figured it out. So she gives herself up to Olivia now so that she can ensure the bell ends up in Olivia's hands. Right. But, but tricking her into thinking that she's stolen it from them. That would be a really good twist there, I think. Like, yeah, tricking tricking someone into doing what you want them to do, which is what I feel like Olivia has been doing to them the whole time. So maybe it's finally, the tables are finally going to be turned, but we shall see. And who knows, like, so much stuff goes on with this show. We could be proven wrong next week. <laughs> yeah, they could. next week it could all just be like, oh, <laughs> JK, all of this was... Taken care of in a completely different way. Thank you for listening. 12 Monkeys Season 4, Episodes 7 through 9 is going to air June 29th on the Sci-Fi Channel. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at geekgals.co. We are on Twitter at geekgalsco without the dot. And we're happy to take any questions. You can email us at contact at geekgals.co. And I just wanted to give a shout out to the showrunner and writers. Uh, thank you for listening to the podcast. And uh, we will see you next time. Bye.